0: I don't know what she's saying, but it's important. <laughs> can tell that. We're nearing the end of our uh, joint study of Acts, where we are study the Scripture in class and then uh, also look at it in the sermon. And this week we've come to the second missionary journey of Paul, and it's a little longer than the first. And so I know in Bible class you looked at Paul's preaching on Mars Hill there in Athens. Well, we're going to back up a step and look at a couple of events that occurred before he got to Athens. And uh, it's a story you know well, and we're going to work through that. But it's a rather lengthy story, so I didn't want to read that whole story. So I found a scripture in John that kind of introduces the theme of that story. Let's be standing, please, as we hear the words of Jesus talking about freedom and slavery. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves to anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? And there's the thing: Do we know that we are all slaves? The word of God. Today we're going to spend, what time we have, stretching the truth a little bit. Uh, That's a phrase I've thrown out to you quite often, I think. It's one of my favorite descriptions of preaching, because I really think one of the callings of preaching is to take Scripture and to stretch it out to where we can look into it, and it has enough time to begin working in us, because when you just read through it so quickly— There's so much there, and and I have a very high view of Scripture. I think that the Holy Spirit works through that word, that it really touches our heart, that it changes our lives, but sometimes we run so quickly through it that we don't give it time to do that. So all I want to do today is take this story in Acts chapter 16 and to stretch it out just enough that maybe a portion of it will have that opportunity to, to jump inside of us and start working on us, or at least we'll have time to walk around within it and maybe learn something new from a very familiar story that we've heard often. Acts chapter 16, we'll begin reading in verse 16, and I encourage you to open your Bible to that story. If you don't have a Bible with you, just reach up there and grab one of those in front of you in the rack. Turn to that and follow along. Let's begin as you're finding that in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have given power in your word to work in it and through it. Father, we pray that as we listen to this story today that your servant Luke wrote for us, that it truly will change our lives, that it will go to the spots in our lives that are hurting, that it will minister to those And that it will shake us in ways where we need to be shook. And we pray this through Jesus. Amen. Story begins. One day as we, Luke was along with that we, you know. He seemed to pop in and out of Paul's journeys beginning about at this point or right before this point. And by the way, where are they at this time? They're in Philippi. They had sailed across over into Greece, into Macedonia. They were in Philippi. And Paul's usual way of doing things was when he got to a new place where he'd never preached before, he would go to the synagogue. And there he would preach to Jewish folks first. And then as uh, things progressed, he would reach out then to the Gentiles. But when he got to Philippi, there was no synagogue. Uh, There were not enough Jewish men. You had to have 12 Jewish, faithful Jewish men in order to have a synagogue. And there were not 12 men, obviously, so they uh, didn't have one. And Paul heard about a place of prayer down on the river. Down by the riverside. There you go. You can tap your foot and sing that song. And that comes from this story that it was Lydia and and primarily a group of women that were meeting down there. And Paul went down and spoke with them. Uh, Lydia responded, her household, a lot of people. And so Paul stayed there in Philippi for a while and continued working with them. So here we go. One day as we were going to the place of prayer, that's down there on the river, we met a slave girl there's the theme. This passage is filled with language about slaves and masters. And right here at the beginning, we run into this slave girl who had a spirit of divination. Now, another thing we're going to throw around a little bit today is the Greek language. I'm a, Greek is a passion of mine. I, I love it, but I know that y'all can, you know, it's, it's not exciting to everyone. But a couple of things I want to point out. One is that the Greek word for divination here is python, uh, the snake, all right? Uh, The snake or the python was the symbol for Apollo, the Greek god, especially as he was manifested in the oracle of Delphi. So you might want to call this girl snake girl, python girl, whatever you want to call her, but that's who she is. She has the ability then to tell fortunes, and she's brought her owners... There's another word you need to know, kurios, is a Greek word meaning owner, it can mean sir, it can mean mister, it can mean master, it can mean lord. And in fact, kurios is the word that, we, that is used to address Jesus as lord. But it was also used to denote people who owned slaves. And here are some men that owned this little slave girl, and they were her owners, they were her lords, they were her masters. So she brought her owners a great deal of money by fortune telling. And she would follow Paul and us and would cry out, these men are slaves. Hey, everyone in this story is a slave. You got that? That's just given. Everyone in the story is a slave. And this slave girl recognized that Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy and all those that were with him, they're slaves. And she calls out, these men are slaves of the God Most High. Now, God Most High is not the favorite term to use for God in the Bible. Most of the time when God Most High is used to describe God, it is being used by a Gentile or has some kind of a Gentile overtone. It's more of a phrase that we use by the other people rather than God's people to describe him. But that's not surprising at this point, is it? Because this is a little Gentile slave girl, and she's calling out, but she knows that whatever God it is, that these guys are servants of him. And notice what else she says, who proclaim to you a way of salvation. Now, we got to get out of our presumptions, our assumptions about salvation. When you hear about salvation, probably the first thing you think of is going to heaven when you die. And we have a very New Testament view. Of salvation, And that's good. But this little girl didn't have a New Testament view of salvation. What did she mean when she called out that these guys can tell you how to be saved? What did she need to be saved from? Got some ideas? Well, for one thing, this spirit that lived inside of her. For another thing, a life of slavery where she was used by these men to produce income and maybe even abused by them in other ways, whenever she was looking for salvation, she was looking for a better life. She was looking for a life that made more sense, a life that was easier to live, a life that that would mean something. So when she said, these guys can tell you a better way, A way that will put your life back together. That's what she meant when she said, they will tell you a way of salvation. Well, Luke tells us now, this girl kept doing this for many days. Now, why Paul didn't put a stop to it immediately, I don't know. Now, it could be that she really kind of, you know know the old saying, any publicity is good publicity? You know, that maybe she was helping gather some crowds of people around. Maybe so, I don't know. Or it could be that Paul knew once he did something about this, then trouble was going to start. You remember how it was with Jesus whenever he was out preaching and teaching, and some people would start saying, "You're the Messiah. You're the Christ." And what would he do? He goes, "Shh, shh, shh. Don't tell anyone right now because my hour has not yet come." Because he knew as soon as that got to be spread around a whole lot, then It was over. Well, maybe Paul, in his wisdom or through inspiration, knew that as soon as he turned and addressed this young girl, his mission in Philippi would be over. So he said that he allowed it to happen for several days. But then finally, Paul, very annoyed, turned. And why was he annoyed? Maybe annoyed at the whole situation. Maybe annoyed. I don't know. But he turns to her and says to the spirit, I order you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And that very hour, it came out. But her owners saw that their hope of making money was gone. I told you everyone in this story is a slave. Who's these guys' master? Yeah, you got it. It's money. The one that Jesus had, refor- had warned us about a long time ago. He said, you know, watch out. You're either going to serve God or money. Pick your master. Well, these guys had picked money. We know that because they're really upset whenever this little girl gets her life back. And do they care? No, because it affects their bottom line. They're driven by profit. And we could, if we had a little time, explore our own society and wonder how profit-driven we are. You know profit has almost become a moral well almost has become a moral system among us that if something produces a profit it's good if something makes money it's worthwhile and it doesn't matter what is sacrificed in order to make the profit if it makes a profit it's good it doesn't matter who's abused in doing that if it produces income then it's worthwhile Well, these men are so much into that system that they can't even see it. Here, a little girl gets her life back, and not one smile among them, but they're upset because she had been producing a lot of money for them. So what do they do? They seize Paul and Silas and drag them into the marketplace before the authorities. Oh, we got a new character here, the authorities, the magistrates. They're going to be slaves, you know. See if you can figure out who their master is. Let's keep reading. So when they brought them before the magistrates, they said, now notice they don't say, hey, these guys are cutting into our profit margin. No, that's not what they say. They say, these men are disturbing our city." Well, who were they disturbing? <laughs> Them, okay. These men are disturbing our city. They are Jews. This is a term of derision even back then. Anti Semiticism, there we go, is not anything new. They are Jews, and they're advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to adopt or to observe. Now, that's a half truth. Uh, really, Roman law didn't care what religion you were. However, They did use the word curios, Lord, Master, to apply to Caesar. And there was a little problem when people began saying, no, 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 Jesus Christ is our Master. He is our Lord. Well, the crowd joined in in attacking Paul and Silas. And so the magistrates had to do something, okay? Who's their master? Well, what are they? They're politicians. So who's the master of politicians? Yeah, the public opinion, right? Well, whoever's yelling the loudest, whoever's screaming the most. So here are their masters. They weren't in charge of this city. They just were in charge. They were trying to keep their jobs. They were trying to do what what they had to do in order to get by so that everybody would just settle down and it would be over. That happens a lot in the book of Acts, by the way. It's always pointed out that as Paul gets in trouble, as, as any of the apostles get in trouble, it's because the people who are in power won't do what's right. They don't care what's right. They just want to do what will make everybody settle down and be quiet. So, the crowd joined in and at attacking them. The magistrates had them stripped of their clothing and ordered them to be beaten with rods. Now there we really need to stop for a while. We're not going to to imagine what that would be like. We, we just read right past. Oh, yeah, Paul got beat. <laughs> yeah. He got stripped naked in the middle of all these people and got beat with these sticks. Uh, you know, th- to realize the amount of suffering that's going on right here before our very eyes. Paul and Silas are beaten, and after they had been given a severe flogging, they threw them into prison and ordered the jailer to keep them securely. Another character. Guess what he is? He's a slave, too. That's right. Let's figure out who or what his master is as we go along. Well, they follow these instructions And he puts them in the innermost cell and fastens their feet in the stocks. Take for a moment and and look. I know you've got a picture of this jailer. Uh, Usually when I picture the jailer, he's wearing a helmet with one of those funny red combs on it. Remember that? Uh, You've seen those? And also he's got that little skirt on with the little pointy things that hang down. Yeah. Okay, is that your picture of the jailer too? All right. Maybe no, I don't know. Actually, the Roman jailers were usually older men who were at least middle age or above and had had been Roman soldiers, and they were now retired. And this was sort of a a thing that a retired soldier could become, is is a a jailer, uh, because he had all the training and everything and was someone who was trustworthy. And a lot of times they lived in the prison, uh, because it sounds like, as we're going to keep reading this, that his family is jumping in and out of the story a little bit later, that they're right there with him. And so maybe he lives, he's got little uh, living quarters that he and his family live there in the prison, or even in some Romans, uh, in Roman times, some of the prisons were actually in people's houses. They kind of subcontracted out that they would build a part of their house as the prison, and, you know, Paul got thrown into some of those along the way too. So anyway, the jailer's there, his house is there, his household, and he puts Paul into his most secure cell that he has. Because he's hearing them say, these guys cannot get away. We need to keep them locked up. He puts them into stocks, which are very uncomfortable. It's not like the old funny things we see in the cartoons where they're like this, you know. But rather, these things are, are leg that, uh, braces and, and that spread your legs out to it's an uncomfortable position. You can't sit. You really can't sleep. You can't get comfortable. Nothing. So there they are. Having been beaten, bleeding. Put in the stocks. And about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. you got to admire them for that, don't you? But are you surprised? You're not surprised they're not sleeping, are you? How could you sleep in a situation like that? But are you really surprised that Paul and Silas, that their thoughts would not turn to God at this time? Not God, as I'm angry with you, why are you letting this happen to me? But giving praise and glory to him. So they're singing and the prisoners are listening to them and suddenly there was an earthquake so violent that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains just fell off. Now I've never been in an earthquake. Anybody here ridden out an earthquake? I sort of see you know, everything shaking, the doors start falling down, these chains are coming out of the walls, everything's sort of crumbling. You can see the jailer, he's probably in his quarters in bed and rocking on the bed, you know, is there, and everybody, what is it, what is it, it's an earthquake, it's an earthquake. Well, immediately the jailer thinks, oh no, an earthquake of this size, I got to go check and see what's happened to the prison. So he runs in, and when the jailer woke up and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he supposed that the prisoners had escaped. All right, we got a little bit of work to do here. Please give me the time to do that because this is so important. I know what I've heard and what you've heard maybe along the way is that the reason he's so distraught and he's going to go ahead and kill himself is because he's going to be put to death for letting prisoners get loose. I have trouble with that. You know, maybe some of that, I know that if a, if, a, if a jailer was negligent and just didn't do his job, yeah, he paid for that with his life. But an earthquake? Give me a break. You know, the Romans set up one of the most fair and, and ec, uh, equitable legal systems in all the world. An earthquake? Don't you think he, I know he could have gone to him and said, you know, I, I put him in the best prison I had, but we had this terrible earthquake and all, the whole building fell apart. And... I just have a little trouble with that. Let me tell you what I think is going on. I think this guy is at the end of his rope. Now, I can't back that up. But just from what happens here and what happens a little bit later, I think this guy has had it. I don't know what's going on in his life. I don't know what it is pushing on him. And I can't name you what master is really pushing him around. It could have been part of it, be the Roman uh, authorities and so forth. Maybe that's a part of it. It could be things are not going well at home. It could be money problems. It could be just uh, something deep inside of him. He's just not happy with it. I don't know what it is. But he obviously is at the end of his rope. And he probably has said to himself, if one more thing happens, that's it. I'm just through. I can't handle another thing. And there it is. Now he's got all this hassle to go through. And he says, I'm, I'm just checking out. That's it. No more. Paul calls out to him. Don't do it. Don't harm yourself. We're all still here. There's no problem. And to his voice, he runs in to the, to the jail, calls for lights. And he looks and everybody's there. And he falls down trembling before Paul and Silas. And then he brings them outside of the prison and says these words. Sirs, I've already told you, what word is that? Lords. Masters. And he asks a very pointed question, what must I do to be saved? Now again, he's not saying, what do I have to do to go to heaven? What he's saying is, how do I get out of this mess I'm in? You tell me. How do I put my life back together? How do I live a life that's meaningful? What do I do? Look at me you tell me. And Paul's answer is, you've got the wrong master. What you need to do is to trust in another master, trust in another Lord. You need to trust the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in a minute, he's going to talk more to him about what that means, but let me tell you quickly what that means. What he's going to tell him is this He's going to tell him that all the things that have gone wrong in your life, all the separation and the alienation that you felt from the universe, from God, from everything, all that's been taken care of through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He has brought you back into harmony with God if you will trust him. But more than that is, if you want to live a life now that is worthwhile and meaningful, then adopt the way of Jesus Christ. Adopt His attitudes. Adopt His values. Adopt His ethics. He will tell you what it means to live. He can put your life back together again. If you'll trust Him. If you will serve Him. If you will let Him be your master. Well, this fell on His ears like, like rain on West Texas sand. You know, it's, wow. It says, they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. His family gathered around. They heard it too. And at that same hour, he took them. And as John Chrysostom pointed out, John Chrysostom is my favorite preacher. I wish I could have met him. He just died 1,700 years ago. What can I say? But anyway, Chrysostom pointed out that, that there is a double washing that takes place here. Because the jailer takes Paul and Silas. And washes their wounds, and begins the healing process for their lives. Paul takes the the jailer and his family, and baptizes them, washing their wounds, beginning the healing process for their lives. And then the jailer says, "Let's go eat," and he takes food, puts it out—typical Roman meal wonder what Paul did with the wine and the bread of that meal. What a beautiful night that turned out to be. And I want to read something that's very touching to me. The last part of this story. He brought them up into the house, set food before them. This is the jailer. And he and his entire household rejoiced that he, not they, he had become a believer in God. Why was his family so glad that he became a believer? I can tell you why. Because that wife got her husband back. And those kids got a daddy back. And the slaves and servants got a master with a smile on his face who loved them and cared for them. Because when someone's life is falling apart, the people that love them, their lives are chaos too. Back to John as we finish. John and Jesus saying, we're all slaves. And he goes on to say, because we've all become slaves of sin. Paul in Romans chapter 6 says, you're a slave to someone. You can either be a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. You can be a slave to the devil. You can be a slave to God. Take your choice. But you need to serve the one who can give you life who can make life worthwhile, who can save your soul. We're going to stand and we're going to sing a song. And this song is sort of a strange song. It starts out, Pierce My Ear. You may know the story. It's from Exodus chapter 21 and Deuteronomy chapter 25. It's when a man is a servant and has a chance to go free, but he chooses because he loves the master so much to stay and to serve that master. And the master was told to take an awl, and to pierce his ear. As we sing this, what we're saying is, Lord, I know I can go out and do whatever I want to, but I'm going to serve you because I love you. Let's stand.